You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Shoemaker, a neurologist in the Rush University System for Health who specializes in treating neuroimmunologic conditions such as neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders, neurosarcoidosis, and acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. He is an expert in treating multiple sclerosis, providing advanced, comprehensive, and individualized care for patients in Russia's state-of-the-art infusion center. The Rush MS Center has been recognized as a center for comprehensive care through the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and Russia's neurology and neurosurgery program, which encompasses the MS Center and Infusion Program, is ranked number four in the nation and best in Illinois by U.S. News and World Report. Dr. Shoemaker, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. To get us started, can you provide us with a brief overview of the Infusion Program at Rush? Sure. So specifically regarding the Neurology Infusion Center, it's housed here in the MS clinic or MS center in the professional office building where we treat a lot of our CNS inflammatory diseases, which the vast majority are going to be multiple sclerosis patients. So around 90% of our patients have multiple sclerosis. Annually, we probably treat between 700 and 1,000 patients each year. Each month, we have between 200 and 300 infusions here in the clinic. We also treat other CNS diseases, conditions that are somewhat similar to multiple sclerosis. Because of the kind of close proximity to our infusion center with our clinic, it kind of allows us to seamlessly integrate the infusions into our clinical practice. And so we are on site at all times for the infusions. It's also near our administrative area. So we try to incorporate the infusions both into our clinical care and also some of our research endeavors. So to follow up, you, know, you said the bread and butter of the infusion rush, rush does centers around MS. Can you go into more detail about the acute measures you can take to treat MS with corticosteroids and IV immunoglobulins? Sure. So, you know, for the longest time, it seemed like the, our only treatment was IV corticosteroids, but often it would require inpatient admission to administer over three to five days. And that can be somewhat cumbersome for a lot of patients, especially if their symptoms are somewhat limited. For example, their typical relapse is going to be acute optic neuritis where they have monocular vision loss, which while very disabling, may not feel like they warrant an inpatient hospitalization. So here in the infusion center, we're able to kind of quickly administer the typical dose is a thousand milligrams of IV solumedrol. We can give that over around an hour, and then they're free to kind of return home for the day. We usually give that over three to five days. That's our typical treatment course, um, and then we often follow that with a seven to 14-day taper pending the patient. For other immune conditions, we sometimes will use different acute therapies, and so intravenous immunoglobulins, another example. It is occasionally used in MS, but it's more often used in diseases like autoimmune encephalitis, MOGAD disease or MOG antibody disease. Occasionally, we will use it acutely in AQP4 positive neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. More often than not, those patients will require inpatient admission. And so the IVIG in the acute setting is often given over four to five days. And then we sometimes will have patients on maintenance therapy 
where they will be receiving fusions every month over two to three days. When did that change take place between using IV corticosteroids and requiring patients to be admitted on a, an inpatient basis versus having them come in on an outpatient basis? So the change basically occurred as soon as we have access to the fusion center. There are certainly patients that will require inpatient hospitalization who have more disabling bouts of acute neurologic inflammation, but a good number of our patients, they're able to easily be infused in the infusion center without requiring the inpatient hospitalization. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about Russia's history with using and developing new MS drugs, such as Empira. Recently, Rush was one of the first hospitals in Chicago to offer embolizumab for neuromyelitis optica. Could you talk about how this drug has improved outcomes for patients with uh, NMO along with eculizumab? Sure. So with neuromyelitis optica, we're actually kind of living in a very interesting time because in the last two years, we've gone from zero FDA-approved medications to now three approved FDA medications with two of those being infusible therapies. So that's inobolizumab or abolizna and ecolizumab or solaris. And so historically, a lot of these patients were treated with oral immunosuppressive agents, either Celsept or azathioprine, which had pretty intermediate efficacy. A breakthrough of this disease was pretty common with some of these agents. There's a lag until they actually reach efficacy, and that would leave patients vulnerable for breakthrough disease or relapse. With medications like inoblizumab, for example, which is a anti-CD19-directed fusible therapy, the onset of action is relatively quick in terms of immunosuppressive therapies, and the relapse reduction is very impressive. And so inoblizumab has a relapse reduction of about 90% compared to placebo in the clinical trials, whereas ecolizumab has a relapse reduction of about 90 to 95% in clinical trials, and that is in against both concomitant immunosuppressive therapy as well as placebo. Where NMO is different from MS is really all the disability is driven from the relapses, whereas in MS we often see the secondary progression contributing significantly to disability over the long term. With our ability to prevent relapses in NMO spectrum disorder. It really has improved long-term disability outcomes for a majority of our patients. I think about the whole host of infusions that you could give to patients and something that comes to mind or something that could be taken for granted is the safety of delivering them. Because of the small nurse to patient ratio, Rush can deliver extremely safe care during infusion. Could you talk a little bit more about how Rush has made safety a priority of the infusion program? That's a really good question because, so for example, with our B-cell depleting medications like ocrelizumab or inoblizumab, the most common side effect is actually infusion-related reactions with up to a third or a half of patients experiencing these reactions with their first dose. And actually, just two days ago, we had a patient in the infusion center have a relatively high-grade infusion reaction, but the nurse was right there and she was able to actually stop the infusion and we were able to give medications to counteract the reaction. It's really kind of an important part of running a safe infusion center. The nursing staff is really the front line. We have physicians here at all times with the nursing staff are the ones who are constantly with the patients and monitoring them as well as administering the medications. And so 
we have an internal monitoring program, which includes labs, MRI studies, but we do vigorous clinical auditing completed by the infusion nurses, making sure the patients are adhering to monitoring programs. Many of these therapies have what are called REMS programs or are risk um, evaluation mitigation strategies, which are required to infuse such medications by the FDA. And in addition to that, the infusion nurses are all certified for administering biologic agents and chemotherapy. They undergo annual training and then training on each of the individual agents. And then part of it too is that with the large volume of infusions, the nurses have become very good at recognizing kind of subtle signs of the infusion reactions. And so we're able to closely monitor certain patients um, a little more closely or predict who may go on to have a higher grade infusion reaction because of their experience, which is very helpful. During the pandemic, how have you adjusted care for patients receiving any of the immunosuppressant drugs, Ocrevus, Aplizna, Rituxan? Have there been any studies that look into patients on these drugs and their immune response to both COVID-19 and the vaccine? That is a very good and timely question. That's honestly a large part of what we've been doing in the last year. And we've had to adapt kind of continuously as we've learned more about both COVID vaccinations and safety outcomes. Our patients have MS though, or other neurologic diseases, and they do require therapy for the condition they have. So we have been open and infusing patients pretty much without real pause during this last year, but we have taken specific considerations regarding the medications and safety into consideration. We know that by affecting the immune system, we may have some impact on patients' response to COVID, as well as their response to vaccination. So with regards to COVID specifically, at first, we didn't know what to expect. With time, some observational studies have been coming out. Initially, a lot of them were coming actually directly from the pharmaceutical companies, and they were kind of self-reporting their outcomes. And with that, we were relatively reassured in that it seemed the patient's outcomes were not really dependent upon their disease-modifying therapies, but rather their underlying comorbidities and risk factors. And so um, it wasn't necessarily that their COVID outcome would correspond to the disease-modifying therapy they were treated with, whether it was a higher efficacy medication like Ocrevus or a non-infusible like Mavenclad or whether it was one of the more gentler medications like Copaxone, which felt not to necessarily suppress the immune system. It didn't really seem like the medication had an impact as much as like their comorbidities, their age, their disability status, or their EDSS, as we call it in, in MS. And that was more likely to predict their outcome. Now, each patient's an individual, and so we would have these discussions with our patients. And with, for example, with the infusible therapies, while there is certain mandated dosing intervals per the label, there is a little bit of flexibility with some of them. And so we'd have discussions with patients about potentially extending the interval to maintain the therapeutic efficacy, but potentially lower risk of outcomes or their time where they are a more impacted disease state. And so, for example, with our B-cell depleting medications, rituximab, Oblizna, and Ocrevus, we have monitored the B cells in certain patients in an attempt to extend the interval between doses. And perhaps that may lessen some of the risk of the medication and also 
we use that in conjunction with some of the vaccination timing for certain patients to allow them a greater time in between infusions to possibly allow them to get a vaccination. With regards to the vaccinations themselves, we don't have any specific COVID-19 vaccination studies. In October, Genentech published the Veloci study where they looked at these B-cell depleting agents and specifically Ocrevus or Ocrelizumab, and they measured certain vaccine response. And so they administered in a two to one ratio of Ocrevus treated groups to other control groups, which were on interferon beta or no disease modifying therapy. They administered tetanus toxoid, Pneumovax, and then they had what was called a keyhole limpet KLH antigen, which is like a novel vaccine. And then they monitored vaccination response. And what they were able to see was that even in patients who were essentially completely depleted of their B cells, following the vaccines by about eight weeks, they saw a positive vaccine response. Now it was somewhat tempered in comparison to the control groups, but there was still a pretty significant response to suggest that there is seroprotection within a month of vaccination, even in patients who have, you know, peripherally depleted B cells. And that kind of has given us some confidence that we can continue to safely treat our patients with highly efficacious agents, and they still have the opportunity to be vaccinated and amount at least a meaningful COVID-19 vaccine response. That's good to know. I want to switch gears and talk about Russia's participation in the phase two clinical trial for opacinumab, which was believed to promote the development of oligodendrocytes, the cells that maintain the myelin coating around the nerves. However, in just this past year in October 2020, Biogen discontinued development of the drug. Where does this leave patients and the research on the remyelination of those nerves? This is another important question kind of going forward. The current disease-modifying therapies we have are very effective at controlling the inflammatory aspect of disease, the relapses, the new T2 T2 lesions, gadolinium-enhancing lesions in MRI. But thus far, we really haven't had a proven remyelinating therapy. And so opacinumab or antilingo was a study that we were participating in. This was actually its third attempt at a phase two study. But unfortunately, it was kind of failing to meet clinical endpoints. It was a little bit discouraging, but I think a lot of the research community has recognized that really the next step in MS therapy is going to be the repair of damaged neurons, the repair of damaged myelin. And so basically each of the larger pharmaceutical companies have some remyelinating agent within their pipeline, and some are in various stages of development. And so I think a large number of these are going to be infusible because the monoclonal antibodies allow us to specifically target antigens, but some of them will be other small molecule agents. There are certain research pathways looking at already FDA-approved and available agents to try to see their potential for remyelination. We are kind of at a point where we are kind of bifurcating our treatment research strategies in terms of continuing to recognize effective disease-modifying therapies while also now looking towards possible repair agents. Kind of going back to what you said earlier, Dr. Stavosky here was one of the leading drivers behind Delfampridine, Forminopiridine, Ampura, and its ultimate approval. We now have lots of, you know, smaller studies showing that it may have some benefit in neuroprotection 
it may have some benefit in repair and other symptomatic domains too. We are kind of reevaluating some of our known therapies to see what role they may play. In 2023, the Rubschlager Building, a state-of-the-art cancer and neurosciences center, will see its first patients. How do you see that center impacting the infusion program and for neurosciences in general at Rush? It's going to be an expansion of what we've established here already. The number of infusion chairs is going to increase, and so therefore our capacity will increase. Some of that will be essentially just to keep up with our expanding MS and related diseases patient cohort. We are utilizing the infusible therapies more and more because we're seeing their benefits in all stages of the disease, especially initially diagnosed. But I think the role of infusible therapies are probably going to expand further within neurology outside of multiple sclerosis and CNS inflammatory diseases. We'll likely be seeing more utilization for peripheral immunological diseases, motor neuron disease, there are promising agents for Alzheimer's disease potentially close to approval, and that'll be a regular infusible therapy that we will likely be administering if it is approved. And then there's a couple steps down the line. We are partnering in our infusion center with other divisions here in the neurology department. So there are studies with autoimmune epilepsy as well as targeted therapies within the movement disorders group. And so we will likely be seeing therapies targeted to even non-traditionally inflammatory neurologic conditions, but other conditions that potentially will benefit from infusible therapies. Well, Dr. Schumacher, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.